Welcome to STO Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. On today's episode, we've gathered STO's life science sector experts from New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Boston to discuss the explosion of life science development across the Northeast, how these markets have been affected by the pandemic, and if the region can maintain this growth. Hello, I'm Caitlin Blazer. I am the business development manager in our Structure Tone Philadelphia office. I'm pleased to be here today with a few of my colleagues to discuss the explosion of life science activity across the Northeast, particularly in Boston, New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, each of which ranked in the top 10 of CBRE's U.S. Top Life Science Clusters Report in October. I am joined today by a few of my colleagues. Um, we have Pat Toner, who's Vice President and Life Science Sector Leader for STO Building Group, Steve Neeson, who is our Senior Vice President and Life Sciences Sector Leader in our New Jersey Business Unit, and Nick Casaro, who is our Senior Project Manager for Life Sciences in the Boston Business Unit. So the Life Sciences Sector is absolutely taking off in each of our respective geographic regions. Together, our markets account for 72% of existing life sciences inventory by square footage, 56% of under construction life sciences inventory, and 40% of lab conversions. So STO Building Group operates in every single one of these major metropolitan hubs supporting the life sciences supercluster. This question's for, for all of us. We'll start with Nick. How do you feel the markets within this region compare to one another? Well, thank you. And hi, everyone. So I guess the thing that I would say that ties them all together, at, you know, going down the Amtrak area and how we support this supercluster is really the the hospitals and the education that kind of runs from, from the Northeast. You have Harvard and MIT predominantly that come out of the greater Boston area. Uh, New York, you have, you know, the Lagone. NYU and Columbia, and then respectively Princeton and Penn Med further down. Um, I think what we've seen is thought leaders coming out of those respected areas that really lead to the development of novel therapeutics, real pharma and biotech to be led outside of those, those universities and those affiliations. I guess I, I would ask, you know, Pat, Steve, what they see in that area as, as things develop and, you know, historically over the, over the years. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thank you, Caitlin and Nick. Always good to hear your voice. Yeah, so I'm going to talk to New York. It's an environment that's highly dense in terms of not only the buildings, but the consulting and client community that reside there. Much like Philadelphia, we've seen an explosion in New York and bio clusters. Nick, much like what you have had in the greater Boston market in Cambridge, maybe that started 20 years ago, you can clearly hear New York City wanting to become the next Cambridge. So growth everywhere from Long Island City and Brooklyn and major bio clusters in Manhattan. To name a few that continue to grow, there's the First Avenue corridor on the east side, uh, which spans many blocks north to south. Up in, in the Columbia area is Manhattanville and West Harlem. Further south in Manhattan, then you have Midtown West and uh, Hudson Square. And uh, Nick, you mentioned one of the other areas institutionally that's growing and continues to grow, and that's the Biolabs at NYU Langone. So uh, somewhat unique, but an environment that's starting to want to become much like 
Nick, what you've grown up in uh, your career experience in the Boston market. So, Steve, any reflections or comparisons to New Jersey? Thanks, Pat. Yeah, I think, you know, New Jersey, you know, having a long history of the traditional Fortune 500 big pharma, we're seeing an increase not only investments in CapEx with those private clients, but we're seeing an infusion of developer-driven programs, such as the Center of Excellence in Bridgewater, other developers repositioning existing real estate in urban areas like Jersey City, cultivating more rural areas, uh, Franklin Township and Somerset, New Jersey, and obviously taking advantage of New Jersey's incentives, NJEDA Choose New Jersey initiatives, where we can continue that development and growth with uh, up-and-coming life sciences companies and, and clients. You know, the previous trend that we were seeing in terms of CapEx spending was more around workspace of the future and campus and community environment developments and and improvements, infrastructure. And now we're migrating heavily towards modernization of core science spaces, benchtop development, R&D. And we're starting to, to see a real influx of new, smaller startup companies or brain trusses that are that are looking for, you know, key space and trying to keep the talent here in the New Jersey region. Yeah, I know that Philadelphia is also seeing a lot of activity with those startups for cell and gene therapy. Philadelphia is definitely an emerging hotspot for life sciences because of our proximity to Eds and Meds. We have um, the Silicon Valley corridor that's out in University City that's close to Penn and Drexel. We have the Navy Yard and a couple other campuses that are popping up. And our proximity to the suburbs is also a big life sciences hub for us as well. So this kind of transitions to our second question here. Pat, you oversee the Structure Tone Life Sciences Division at a national level. How does the Northeast life science market compare to other regions around the country? Yeah, it's an interesting question. If you look at the Northeast, on one hand, it shares many common traits across the life science environment to that that I see nationally. On the other hand, however, what's unique about the Northeast, quite honestly, I think is the culture. There's a sense of urgency and speed that influences not only the way that we look at business and conduct business, but actually it transcends into our personal lives. So work is pretty much forefront Uh, in the way that we conduct ourselves. The density, again, I think is unique when I compare the Northeast to other traditional hotspots in life science. I'll just say Southern California right now is a hotspot and and you can compare and contrast, uh, let's say Cambridge or New York City to LA or San Diego, certainly uh, much different culturally and the way that business is conducted. So there are many uh, common but opposing similarities. Certainly COVID has influenced the way that life science is being conducted. I think that's a common thread. I do believe that we have more institutional higher education as well as medical institution partnerships that reside in a closer proximity in the Northeast. Again, it's a function I think of the population and perhaps cell and gene therapy is advancing more so in the Northeast, particularly in Philadelphia. But as I mentioned before, I see it in Manhattan. So there are many other trends that seem to be common across the nation. And it has everything to do from a shortage of you know, real estate for R&D in urban centers to uh, clients, developers looking for suburban places to invest capital and satisfy many, many startups. We see commonalities across the nation 
in bio clusters, shared R&D environments, a real migration in traditional corporate environment focus to now focusing on life science environments. And that, and that includes everything from real estate professionals to consultants, to contractors, to developers. And all across the country, there's been a significant influx of capital and funding, everything from the federal government to a state and local government including incentives to invest and manufacture in the U.S. So while those those are all common across the country, I do think some of the things that makes the Northeast stand out include that, that need for speed, sense of urgency, and the density of the EDS and MEDS. Yeah, I think the other thing Pat touched upon is Historically, for years, biotech has kind of been it's something that needs high clearance. You know, it can be on one or two stories. You can't go in high rises. I think with those novel therapies and smaller scales, but higher yields that we're seeing in terms of the science uh, supports those now to be kind of moving into New York that can go more into high rises or multiple floor plates in the city of Boston, whereas historically, you know, Steve can talk to have been one, two, maybe three stories max, and they just have to be rolling, rolling fields of facilities because to get the size yields that you needed or the size, you know, of capacity for drugs that you needed, you needed these campus-like environments. I think now, you know, novel therapeutics, what we'll talk about later in terms of, you know, mRNA and novel therapeutics now can be more compact and keep them closer to urban environments. Um, I know, Steve, in New Jersey, you're seeing now, you know, these big rolling campuses turning over to being more of not just R&D, but also smaller facilities. So it can be multi-tenant where it used to be these big, big facilities, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the other trend is as multi-tenant facilities uh, where they can advertise shared capacity for infrastructure. So the distribution and the shared costs, you know, are built into lease arrangements rather than upfront costs by each of these smaller companies that may not be financially leveraged to to basically get real estate propositions going on their own. So it is creating a benefit for ease of entry into high-tech spaces for some of these smaller companies. Right. So that's actually one of my questions is, I know that, you know, this is a big hub, but are there any downfalls to the Northeast and why we wouldn't be successful? Because I know in Philadelphia, we have limited space in University City and along the Silicon Valley. So what's how do we solve that problem of limited space to grow into for lab space? That's where this real huge wave of speculative development uh, is really taking hold and finding existing real estate that can be convertible to multiple uses. So a lot of these developers, they're not taking an attack plan of, I know it wants to be biomedical research, or I know it wants to be biochemistry or chemical biology. They just want to know that they're going to have a facility that on spec, somebody's going to say that's an attractive place to go. Wait a minute, you have full backup on generator, you've got a wastewater treatment separation system, you've got this, you've got central vac, lab gas, distribution infrastructure, I can move right in and build my clean space. That's really where I think this push is coming from, Caitlin, is is take over available real estate and really cultivate it to, to solicit these kinds of customers. 
Yeah, I mean, I think here they put on the listing sheet on the side of the road, life science ready, and I think you've got about four or five cars pulling in. And it just because of, okay, you got backup, you got a neutralization system, okay, where do I sign? Because the rest of it is you're starting with a Lowe's or a skating rink. You know, you put life science ready, it could be R&D, it could be GMP, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's kind of where this market is, and I think Connecticut's probably where it's going to go because we're running out of old buildings to fix. There's not too many of them around here, you know, available anymore, at least in the 95 to 495 belt. We're actually out into Worcester Springfield now looking, which is crazy. Now, Waltham Waltham has historically been sort of an extension of Cambridge. Is that an area that you feel is sort of maxed out as well? Yeah, so that's tapped out. Lexington is probably tapped out. Cambridge Seaport tapped out. I think you're now going to see downtown crossings probably next in line. And then you're really out in the burbs. Hopkinton, Steve, I know you know the area. Hopkinton, South Street's tapped. Like there's really nothing left. I, I was talking to a broker the other day that is from New Haven. And he said, I've taken six calls today to go to go to Connecticut. Do they want to come to Philadelphia? <laughs> We've got plenty of space in our suburbs. <laughs> here's here's the here's the thing that makes Connecticut enticing all of a sudden if you really put together all the math. You have the education, you're between the two metros, you can ride the Amtrak, and oh by the way, the state's willing to pay you right there. So have at it. Yeah. You can you can take you can take west of Hartford. I'll take east of Hartford, and we'll, we'll split the difference. <laughs> there you go. You know, and it's it's not local brokers. It's Colliers. It's Cushman. It's JLL. They're all saying EBRE. Yeah. It like really buckle buckle up and everybody get used to driving eighty four because we're all going to be in Connecticut before you know it. Great. So. Pat, you kind of briefly mentioned it, and it's the big elephant in the room is COVID-19. It's obviously impacted all of us, and it's especially impacted construction in the life sciences industry. Has it stalled or has it accelerated construction, particularly in cities across the Northeast that were hit the hardest in the beginning of the pandemic? Thanks, uh, Caitlin. So our experience in New Jersey, which is similar to other parts of the country, is some of the work continued as essential as deemed by the state legislature and the governor. So we had about 60% of our projects continue working because they were healthcare or life sciences driven work. So we had to collaborate our efforts, you know, an STO building group global level for return to work at construction sites with safety as top of mind. It was a great experience to collaborate with the customers uh, and the facilities who were developing their own safe practices. So that synergy really resulted in successful development of programs, creating safe environments in the workplace. And I think what that did is it instilled confidence in our market and our industry to allow projects to continue and be taken off the non-essential platform and be put into work and continue as regular as possible under COVID-19 procedures. So we resumed basically full construction on all of our projects within the first 75 days of the pandemic. And that continues today. We're working on the logistics of 
keeping social distancing requirements, limiting group gatherings, smaller work cohorts for trade workforce. And we're starting to see investments in, in capital projects for a lot of touchless features, revamping of entries, lobbies, common spaces, restrooms. So there has been some targeted investment in some of those smaller CapEx projects around the state. Right. And Caitlin, just to uh, talk a little bit about the impact we saw right at, uh, let's say, in March of this year, some different observations. Big Pharma, for example, the client base that we call on quite oftenly, almost all of the customers paused and they paused with what I would call lower risk, non-critical projects and deployed teams probably centered around this Operation Warp Speed directive. So everything from scientists to engineers, manufacturers, anyone in the supply and logistics change, the planning that went into that, we saw those clients take a pause and many of those clients stayed at home. I would say that almost all those customers still had R&D scientists working around the clock on those sites and you know, a lot of interaction with government and agency officials trying to plan on ways to accelerate approval. So we've seen that happen on the big pharma side and acceleration for sure at different levels, I'm gonna call it the startup tier two and tier three biotechs. Also acceleration by contract manufacturers that have been asked to take on some of this vaccine manufacturing and also a shift in manufacturing. By that, I mean that, that definitely funding at the government level, following the realization that we have a real shortage in North America for raw materials, the ability to manufacture in general. We're seeing customers now kind of reprioritize capital in the future to prepare to, to be more self-sufficient. So those are some of the, the other COVID-19 impacts I've seen. Awesome. So Nick, you recently joined the Structure Tone Boston office and you have a really good pulse on trends that drive this industry. Why do you think that the Northeast has emerged as this concentrated life sciences hub? And are you seeing any trends that are specific to the life sciences in the Northeast? To Steve's point, to talk to COVID, I mean, overall, this year has been, you know, it was paused, it was stopped from March to May timeframe. And when I mean pause, I mean in construction. But I think what was happening in the background is something that we're all going to hear and feel in years to come. What I mean by that is there has been a deep investment by venture capital by developers, by architects and engineers to really take a pause and, and look at how we build these facilities, how we interact with these facilities, and how others may invest in these facilities. Part of what we saw in, in that time frame in quarter two of 2020 is I think there was more venture capital money that was invested in biotech this year in the middle of a pandemic than there was last year without a pandemic. And that says something to where we are as an industry. I think people believe that what Pfizer, what Moderna are going to do in terms of using a novel therapeutic as a vaccine is only proving the case that novel therapeutics can be good for our industry and can be used for other types of diseases or you know health needs that people need. So what I see kind of as a trend going forward is Overall, the Northeast is probably going to see more vaccines being developed in the next couple of years. More are going to be based around this novel therapeutic-like technology. And then I think you're going to see 
oncology, rare diseases, orphan diseases start using this novel therapy for what they're trying to research and find a cure for. So, I mean, I think what we're going to see is, you know, what Moderna and what Pfizer have done now are really kind of the second wave of novel therapies. So now we're subsequently now going to start to feel the ripple effects of three, four, and five. And as they grow up, they're going to touch all different facets of this mega cluster as they mature. You know, it seems like they start in urban urban areas and as they become bigger and have more of a commercial pipeline, they go into suburban areas where they can find more more labor that they demand at a more reasonable price, but keep kind of the development and pipeline closer to the education and their center of excellence. Pat and Steve have unique perspectives in their respective markets because, you know, Pat is, they're growing to be what, you know, Boston is at. And then Steve is kind of supporting those companies as they've matured in terms of growing and now supporting them on a commercial level past the growing pains, but more of maintain and support for their new drugs in their new, new cycles. Yeah, I think one of the things we're learning from some of our customers is the challenge around space planning and what the future needs are going to be. We've spoken with a few customers recently where they were heading towards uh, how do we have space that's flexible to deal with the potential future pandemic impact like social distancing, workplace distancing, limiting gathering spaces, converting multi-use rooms to private offices, so almost a, a, a sort of reflex to uh, how do we create space that can handle some of this. We're also learning from customers, as Pat said, that work from home opportunities that their staffs have, they're proving that they're still efficient. Productivity losses are not what some would expect. And the contemplation of densifying workspace or reduction in space per headcount may be a trend in the future. So we're hearing customers with challenges around what does their future workspace look like? Right. Caitlin, just to add to that, in terms of acceleration, it's interesting because some clients can see the future in terms of what they want that workplace to be. Some customers have directed acceleration actually in the workplace. While the employees stayed at home, they've asked construction firms like ours to mobilize and to prepare you know, a better, brighter work environment and improve work experience. There's a great deal of competition to attract or retain the best and the brightest in life sciences today. And some customers are engaging us to, like I said, improve and modernize the workplace. To Steve's point, a lot of clients are pausing still, trying to figure out what that model looks like, what the program is going to become or needs to be. And we see that in the Fortune 500 category as well. Awesome. So we only have one more question, and I want each of you to weigh in on it. So what do you believe is next for the life sciences industry and life sciences construction in the Northeast? Do you see the region continuing to dominate the sector? Pat, let's start with you because you are a national leader. Sure. Yeah, I'm a little bit cautious about saying that the Northeast dominates because, because there are a lot of other dominant regions in the country. I do think what's unique about us today is the growth and the rate of growth. In some respects, that is dominating growth in, in other markets. 
What do I see for the future? I see the continued investment by venture capitalists, the continuation of partnerships, the advancement of personal medicines that, that Nick has talked about a couple of times, and smaller scale environments for life science development. We're seeing trends where customers are asking us to look at properties that have been vacant for some time, anything from small light industrial properties to most recently actually a, a skating rink that can be converted to small scale manufacturing. So I see growth from urban centers out into suburbia in startups and in partnerships, including with venture capitalists. So uh, everything that we've read suggests that life science will continue to be a sector with significant growth for years to come. Awesome. Nick, what do you think? What do you think the future for life sciences in Boston is going to be? I think we're going to continue kind of being on the forefront of novel therapies and R&D for startup companies. I think we're going to see year over year the venture capital world still investing and in believing in biotech. You know, the vaccine race, I think, probably proves that novel therapies can be fast reacting in a regulatory space. I think we're at the point now of seeing landlords trying to find that science of, um, you know, really investing in GMP manufacturing in terms of either a spec level or preparing buildings for more manufacturing. I think that's going to become a common thing like R&D was about 10, 15 years ago where the special sauce was identified and now the next wave is, is here. That's probably what we're going to start to see now as the spatial demands for very small pilot scale manufacturing has kind of been reduced and able to be done in multi-tenant buildings. Yes, I, I would echo all those sentiments. And, you know, obviously mergers and acquisitions uh, over the years has driven a tremendous amount of activity in our marketplace. You know, and now we're seeing the emergence of a lot of joint ventures, larger companies acquiring the rights to smaller companies, product development or their their research and discovery products and contract arrangements seem to be emerging basically all throughout the globe in terms of who's who's contracted to either do research or do manufacturing. I would love to see small scale and pilot scale manufacturing really flourish here in New Jersey. I think it's been a challenge over the years with the TP California and, and offshore manufacturing. So hopefully that's a, that's a trend that we'll see coming in the future, Nick. I hope you're right. Steve, to your point, I think that's going to be something because of COVID, you know, the larger guys have identified they have to have siloed continents in terms of the supply chain. I think you're going to start seeing kind of the bigger guys saying, if we ever had COVID again, knock on wood, we don't. But if we did, you know, each continent could live on their own where, you know, we're not sending things to a filling facility in Ireland from New Jersey or, you know, vice versa. I think that that is something that we're going to see in terms of uh, independent supply chains via continents, I think is probably on its way to us for the bigger guys. Awesome. So I just want to thank each of you for joining us and talking today a little bit about the life science market sector in each of our geographic regions. I hope this is just the beginning of this discussion and we can continue to explore the development of life sciences along this life sciences corridor. So thank you guys very much. Thanks for hosting, Caitlin. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Be safe. 
Thanks for listening to STO Building Conversations. For more episodes like this, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the Structure Tone website.